You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. All right, so welcome to our second podcast from IMSH here in San Antonio in Texas. And I'm joined again by Ben Simon. How are you? Yeah, really good. That's good. So a couple of topics we're going to focus on today. And the first was rapid cycle deliberate practice. Uh, this is a topic that's had a lot of currency in the simulation community for a few years now, uh, perhaps popularized or at least given a high profile profile by Betsy Hunt's work at John Johns Hopkins in pediatric resuscitation. And for those unfamiliar with the technique, this is really changing a little bit the way we think about our scenario delivery and not just having a format which is here's a 20-minute scenario and a 40-minute debrief and I hope you'll learn something from it, but instead coming back to let's do a bit Let's get some directive feedback. Let's go back and do it again. So as the name suggests, really rapidly cycling towards a very prescribed endpoint. And I guess my bias showing, I think it's really well suited towards technical skills or things where good performance is easy to describe. So Mm -hmm. things like resuscitation seem to work pretty well. So... uh, how did you come about finding some folks to interview about this, Ben? Yeah, look, so, and I have to say at the Inspire meeting the day before, they had this really cool uh, alert session where people pitched their research and got a lot of group feedback on it. And one of the very prominent theme- themes was rapid cycle deliberate practice. And I got the sense that people are starting to not just embrace it, but want to find out what else it might be good for. So it seemed to be bleeding a little bit into not just necessarily specific skills, but kind of broader situations than I understood it to be practical for. Uh, And I ran into uh, a friend called Bram Welch Horam, who uh, works at Texas Children's. And we had originally bonded over Twitter over a particularly nerdy childhood book that we both had about Louis Pasteur. And uh, so he was really keen to talk about how rapid cycle deliberate practice has fit in with him contextually, particularly within pediatrics and the fact that we often don't do a lot of critical care stuff, even in pediatric emergency, because serious trauma in particular is quite rare. Mm. I'll just reassure Simulcast listeners, Ben has real friends too, not just ones on Twitter. (laughs) Uh, But let's listen to Bram. I'm here in San Antonio with Bram Welch-Horan, and uh, we were both together at the Inspire Alert meeting yesterday. And I was just wondering, Bram, if you could just uh, tell our audience who you are, where you work, and uh, we'll go from there. Yeah, so I'm a pediatric emergency physician um, and faculty member at Baylor College of Medicine and Texas Children's Hospital in Houston, Texas. Great. And so we were just uh, chatting between ourselves recently that certainly when I went to the Inspire meeting yesterday, they were doing an alert session where they pitched a whole bunch of new research that the people were problem solving. And rapid cycle deliberate practice seemed to come up an awful lot. It was kind of like the new black of uh, simulation at the moment. And I'm just wondering what's your perspective on rapid cycle and its relevance to your clinical practice? Absolutely. So um, so I've been teaching with RCDP for a long time. Um, relatively speaking. And, um, you know, it's gotten me thinking a lot about how we learn and what are the different ways we practice. And not all of them are kind of the traditional ways we were told about in medical school. So during um, that set of presentations yesterday, as we were hearing about how deliberate practice is informing some of the newer methods of teaching about resuscitation for teams, um, I started thinking back to an event I had last summer, which was actually the first time in my own clinical practice that I'd actually successfully defibrillated a child. And 
during the session yesterday, I couldn't help but think about um, that event and the fact that I felt comfortable knowing what to do. I felt confident in my own clinical practice of knowing what to do, not as much about what I'd been taught, but because of all the times I'd done the teaching and all the times I'd done essentially that scenario with our learners using our CDP. And I think in pediatrics in particular, particularly vulnerable to that need because I guess from a patient population point of view, most kids are healthy. Uh, real serious events don't necessarily walk into our practice all of the time and those kind of acute critical care skills that we need in the moment to do really well don't necessarily aren't necessarily the things we do on a day-to-day basis like you might get used to treating VF in adults for example. Absolutely. And, and, you know, that makes me think about what are the different ways simulation happens. And some of it isn't necessarily as the participant. In some ways, being the teacher for some of this actually ends up serving for me as a form of mental rehearsal. Because I know through the process of thinking out, you know, what's the choreography for this resuscitation? What are the key actions? And how, do, how are we going to operationalize those? It's easy to look at the algorithm, but how are we going to actually get our team to do it? And one of the ways we can get good at that is by how we teach it and by we help our learners practice it and the way and what our mind goes through in guiding that learning is actually very powerful in terms of how we take care of patients absolutely all right well thank you so much for your time do you have anything else you wanted to add before we wrap it up happy to be back with everybody at imsh and happy to be talking to you ben Awesome. Cool. Thanks so much to finally meet you in person as opposed to on Twitter. And uh... You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. Okay, so I'm here with Belinda Lowe, who's travelled with me all the way from the Gold Coast, Australia, where she's one of our simulation fellows at Bond University, uh, enjoying IMSH and enjoying being in America, Belinda? I, I am enjoying IMSH. Thanks, Vic. Yeah, <laughs> not so sure. Yes, but Texas is quite something else. Isn't it, it is, absolutely. All yeah. right. Uh, so you went to this hot topic session on rapid cycle deliberate practice, sort of building on the interview Ben did with Bram. Uh, and this is actually a pretty good format where you get multiple speakers on the one topic. And one of the things you were telling me about was you went to this session which looked at this drill training approach for just how you set up your team at the beginning of any kind of resuscitation. And this is the name, claim, aim. Can you tell us a bit about it? Um, sure. This was in a presentation um, by the CMS group that really sort of talked about this structure to try and organize um, and sort of give structure to the initial part of the team um, in a simulation. Uh, so it involved name, so to actually name the actual uh, emergency uh, claim for the event manager and also the team um, constituents, and then to aim for the team uh, to come up with sort of their, their management plan. Um, and it just seemed a really great way to actually organise and structure the team at the beginning of a um, simulation, which they then paired with the rapid um, cycle deliberate practice um, simulation. Yes, and I think we can underestimate how we need kind of reflexive rituals at that point that just help everyone calm down. It has a big psychological effect. Uh, There's nothing magic about any recipe, but just to have one is important. Mm. Uh, So then I think the session, as you said, went on to explore the applications of uh, RCDP across a number of different contexts. What were your kind of take-home points of how that might compare to, say, scenarios that go for 20 minutes and then we have a half an hour debrief? 
Um, what really struck me in the session is really how useful they may be um, in scenarios, particularly where you're wanting a team to achieve a mastery of skill. Um, so allowing that team to sort of not only go through a simulation, but to go back and sort of perfect, um, you know, a particular skill um, before finishing the the actual simulation. So I think there's particular um, circumstances where it might be certainly very useful. Hmm. All right. Well, we'll look forward to more and uh, hope you enjoy the rest of the conference. No worries. You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. Uh, the second topic we wanted to cover on this day was thinking a little bit about publishing and papers. Mm. And uh, I obviously am very enamored of our own journal club, Ben, but it sort of feeds into what I think Simulcast is about, which is how do I identify the literature and translate it into thinking about people's everyday practice. So I went along to a session uh, entitled Articles of Influence, very interesting session with uh, Michelle Kelly leading, uh, and in fact, very well attended by about 100 people, I think it was. So um, here's a little snippet from Michelle. All right, so I'm here with Michelle Kelly and Sir Ken Choi, and I've just been to their session on articles of influence, uh, covering those articles in simulation which have been judged to be impactful from July 2017 to June 2018. And just to recap on the process, it's a rather robust one. So looking at the journals, Advances in Simulation, Simulation in Healthcare, BMJ Stell and Clinical Simulation in Nursing, plus the odd wild card, this was a process where 29 reviewers looked through a total of 192 papers and came up with, uh, I think the number, Michelle, was about... Mm, 33. Yeah, or 14 that got featured today. Yes. 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 Well... Mm-hmm. Thank you, Michelle. Quite an exhausting process. Uh, without going through all the papers, there are a few interesting themes that emerged about the ones that uh, were there. What sort of stood out for you as what's happening in the simulation literature? Mm. I think uh, what struck me was the diversity in topics and uh, research approaches for those uh, research papers. Um, quite a lot of uh, uh, understandably qualitative and mixed methods research particularly from the nursing journals Um, but um, educational theory stood out as well Um, and just the different applications of sim right from uh, finally um, undergraduate uh, health students in transitioning to practice um, continuing professional development interprofessional Um, and the diversity of um, authors as well. And it was terrific to see one of the featured articles coming from authors in uh, Wuhan University in China. Um, I think it really illustrated uh, the the reach of simulation practice and research uh, around the globe. Uh, I agree with you. And just to kind of zone in on a couple of specific details, there were articles there about... uh, empathy training, disclosure training, a lot of work on safety, things like hidden curricula. Mm -hmm. Uh, There were a couple there about technical skills uh, training, particularly in undergraduates and deliberate practice. Uh, But it seems to me that the so-called non-technical skills continues to dominate. Mm. Um, That's probably not surprising, but what do you think? Mm. I I like the way it's going because it's uh, moving from uh, what I consider early uh, research which looked at um, things that were easy to measure Uh, time on task number of errors uh, and clinical skills exclusively 
but now it's really broadening to uh, communication. It's the holism of practice. Uh, we didn't so much see consumer engagement, but that is also featuring increasingly, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if we see more of that. Yes, there was one I thought that really did focus on patient experience, and that was from Clinical Simulation in Nursing, an Australian article, which looked at exploring nursing students' perceptions of a novel point of view disability simulation. Mm-hmm. So I think we're starting to see more of this patient experience at mm-hmm. the very least. Mm-hmm. Um, the one other thing I want to talk to you about was I was surprised uh, and impressed with the level of engagement of the audience in the room and some really robust discussion about how you include this mm. and a few themes that came out. Do you look at for instance uh, clinical craft journals or do you look at dedicated simulation journals and I guess the answer is they all have their place but I was just uh, I guess impressed with the robust discussion there. Mm -hmm. Mm. Indeed I think it was robust Uh, and uh, we outlined the process that we followed and uh, the direction that was given to the research committee of uh, SSH Uh, and we elucidated that a number of times but I think increasingly uh, the, the pressure of where to publish um, from uh, particularly um, physician um, and surgeon uh, backgrounds um, in their uh, more familiar journals which are increasingly taking an educational type um, uh, category of um, publication that's not necessarily been the case in the past but uh, people, of course, are attracted uh, through many um, influences in getting published in uh, journals with higher impact factors. And in educational journals per se, that's not necessarily the case. So I think we're seeing a lot more diversity in where people publish. And I think the wild cards in this particular process will be more um, um, diverse, um, more in number um, in the future. Uh, and at the end of the session, you had a call for people who want to put their hand up to be reviewers for next year's Articles of Influence. Mm-hmm. Um, is there an easy way if you're, for instance, a member of the society, can you access that opportunity through the website? Yes. Uh, the article, the list of um, 30-odd articles, as well as the ones within that that were featured today, will be emailed to the uh, participants in the session, but also will be posted on the SSH website, uh, together with a QR code and a URL that people can take a short survey to uh, indicate their uh, interest. And I think the more people we have, obviously, the less work, but the more uh, robust, again, the process can be if we have more than two reviewers. Um, and the, diverse, the diversity of clinical backgrounds, I think, is really important, as evidenced in the robust discussion and Absolutely. suggestions that we received. Excellent, Michelle. And for those of you who are interested in connecting, again, that website is ssih.org and the Articles of Influence Reviewer section if you'd like to put yourself forward. You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. And so still in the theme of thinking about publishing, uh, you went to a session, Ben, of thinking about how to be a good peer reviewer for the journal. Tell us about that. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess as part of being in this uh, Simulcast Journal Club, I've started to get the occasional invite to be a real peer peer reviewer. And... um, (laughs) 
It can be a really overwhelming kind of experience when you start out. So it was a fantastic session to meet with the simulation and healthcare team um, who gave a lot of feedback and did some exercises as a group about um, different issues that come up when you become a peer reviewer. And I was uh, lucky enough to talk to one of the associate editors there. Hi, I'm Sharon Murtwag-Steff, and I'm Associate Editor of uh, Simulation and Healthcare. I'm from uh, Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, where I run uh, our Simulation Center for the School of Medicine, and I'm Associate Professor of Surgery. Great. And so, look, Sharon, as someone who's uh, done a couple of article reviews, as someone who's very new to it, it can be quite an overwhelming new field to get into. We recognize it's an important learning experience for ourselves in a way of contributing back uh, to the, I guess, the literature in the field that we're interested in. Um, but I think certainly for myself, I ran into a lot of easy mistakes at the start and, and stumbling blocks. What to you, from your advice, really makes uh, a good quality article reviewer? Ah, that's a great question. And thank you for mentioning what a contribution this is to the field. I think all of us who publish have a responsibility to the field to give back and to serve as peer reviewers for others. Also to bear in mind as a reviewer what it feels like to get those comments back. So I think a good reviewer is one who, first of all, lets us know whether or not right away, whether or not they're able to review. You can't always review right now. Maybe you've got a grant deadline that you're facing um, or some other uh, issue. Let us know that. That's okay. And tell us why. And tell us who else you think would be a good reviewer for that particular paper. Um, and then as you write your review, um, think about the main points. Is Are there are there uh, fatal flaws in the paper that no matter what, this paper just is not going to be publishable? Let us know that. Be clear about that, especially in your confidential comments to the editor. Um, don't write your decision about whether you think this should be accepted or rejected in the notes back to the author, because remember, there are going to be at least two other reviewers on the paper and they may have uh, differing perspectives. So in your comments to reviewers or to the, to the authors, give them concise and precise and specific feedback. First of all, an overall uh, comment about the paper just so that the authors understand that you understand the paper. And then your very specific comments going marching right through the sections of the paper, including line numbers and so forth. Now, that doesn't mean that you should be correcting grammatical mistakes and spelling punctuation errors and so forth. We pay people to do that. What we want are your perspective from your field of endeavor on this particular paper and written in a way that the authors can respond and improve their manuscript for one, and that the associate editor and the editor-in-chief can use your ideas to make a decision about whether we ultimately accept or reject the paper. Okay, so it sounds like you need someone who's prompt uh, and responsive, but also empathic about the writer's needs as well as um, the journal's needs as well. I'm just wondering, in terms of your experience with new uh, article reviewers, what are some uh, easy stumbling blocks that people tend to fall into? Mm. Sometimes uh, n new reviewers 
I tend to be too empathetic with the uh, with the authors and a little bit wishy-washy, and I have to check myself on that as well. Um, you want to be clear and concise and don't bring, let people go running down the road on a wild goose chase um, when you could have been more concise with your comments. Also, as a new reviewer, it's very helpful uh, to ask someone who's senior in your department to look at you, take a look at re- your review and get comments yourself on your own review before you submit it. Oh, that's a great point. And then I guess lastly, so if you're getting interested in contributing to this uh, field by uh, becoming an article reviewer, um, what are some resources that you're aware of that people can start to train themselves or get some feedback on? Mm, there are some terrific resources. If you go to the website uh, with instructions for authors to simulation in healthcare, you will find, uh, for example, guidelines, you will find examples, you will find guidelines specific to certain types of papers. Um, read through all the instructions to authors. Um, there, We also have reviewer guidelines on the website for simulation and healthcare. All of those can be very helpful. Brilliant. Okay, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. The other thing that we had on day two was another keynote presentation, this one from Ken Robinson, who many people will know from his TED Talk fame. Apparently, he's had 55 million downloads uh, on about his speaking about learning. And he really took that same deep dive into thinking about learning in his keynote today. It was a very entertaining talk. There were so many stories, but I think also a series of pretty important points, sort of starting out almost with the horrors of school and formal learning Mm -hmm. and how we were depriving children of their natural instincts to play for a whole variety of reasons, which I think we can understand about changes in society. And uh, he sort of made the point, and I love this phrase, that the prototypical form of simulation is play. Mm. And we probably should be remembering that as simulation providers and really made the leap to thinking about the opportunities here for creativity and how technology can be thought of as a series of tools which allow us to extend the possibilities for what we can do. So I found this fascinating at a conceptual level, but I think I could also get the sense that Uh, We really do need to avoid just getting into a recipe-driven approach to our education and simulation. And I think the idea of, to use a much overused term, consistently innovating, but just thinking about what else is outside, what are the possibilities. Um, What were your thoughts about it, Ben? Look, I loved it and I admired it from a meta perspective just watching a master orator. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, I really liked the message. And in particular, my take-homes were about the importance of technological innovation that emphasizes and enhances our ability to be human, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, the way he talked about uh, innovations that have allowed people to interact in a more positive uh, real life manner, uh, rather than just connecting us all on screens, uh, which obviously given this podcast is still a good thing. Um, and I really just enjoyed his kind of dry British wit as mm. well. That was great. Yeah, I know. Interesting to see he's just signed mm-hmm. up to be an American citizen. We'll see how that goes. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you, Ben. Another, uh, wrap for day two. Great. You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation.